Hello, and welcome to this special edition of the Vision Podcast. I'm your host, Karen Brown, and today we're joined by Josh Foreman from MSU's Department of Communication and his longtime friend, we've heard a very longtime friend, co-author, Ryan Starrett. And together they have authored several books in their Hidden Series, Hidden History Series. Josh and Ryan, welcome to the Vision Podcast. Thank you for having us. And we have to go on. You, when we were before we started the show, you were talking about this longtime friendship, and we're talking more than five, ten years, right? Yeah, um, we both grew up in Jackson, Jackson area, and we we took a tumbling class when we were about three or four years old, and uh, our parents, I guess, hit it off and became friends. So we continued our friendship on from that tumbling class to uh, many many days of meeting up at a uh, friendship park there in Ridgeland. And, and then when we got old enough to drive, we were driving to each other's houses every week. And um, we've been close friends for basically our entire lives. And now writing together. <laughs> yeah. Yes. We're so excited to have you guys on the podcast. I'm uh, the other host, Sam Califer. And, uh, yeah, so cool to hear that y'all have been friends together for so long and then now have worked together on this, um, series of books that are so interesting. Um, and so I really want to focus in on one of them today. So in this special episode, we're going to switch the style up some as part of this hidden history series. You both published a book in 2022 called Death Along the Natchez Trace. As many know, the Natchez Trace is a historical trail within the United States spanning the hundreds of miles between Nashville, Tennessee and Natchez, Mississippi. Uh, It was used for centuries by Native Americans and then later by European and American explorers and traders. The trace hides the untold stories of the countless people who lived and died along its path. And today we're going to record a true crime styled podcast to explore some of those stories. And so to start, could you tell us a little bit about the Hidden History series as a whole, and then specifically what drew you to the Natchez Trace as part of the series? Yeah, we we have been working with the History Press for about six or seven years now. We, we're both from Jackson, Mississippi, and we started out writing about Jackson. So our first book together was Hidden History of Jackson. And um, they liked the book. They liked our style. The book sold well. And um, we've been writing for them ever since. We write about one book a year. And we're pretty focused on Mississippi and the surrounding states. We wrote A Hidden History of New Orleans, and we've written about Alabama, Tennessee, Dallas. So kind of this deep south area. And we've covered the Gulf Coast. We've covered the city of Natchez. We've covered Jackson, New Orleans. And so um, we said, you know, the Natchez Trace is such an important old road in Mississippi history and in, in, in American history. So why don't we, you know, the Natchez Trace passes through Natchez, Jackson, Tupelo, Nashville, all these places. Why don't we look at the Natchez Trace and see uh, what are some good stories that we could tell with the kind of theme being the history of the Natchez Trace. So I would say the, um, you know, we both grew up very close to the Natchez Trace and playing on the Natchez Trace, but 
I did not really realize that the Natchez Trace united the South um, in the late 1700s, early 1800s. You had American um, settlers who were moving into Kentucky and Tennessee. And then you had this European influence at New Orleans and the Gulf Coast and Natchez, Spanish, French, and British. And there was really no way to easily go from those Kentucky and Tennessee settlements down to Natchez. You could go down rivers, but then once you want to get back up there, there was not really an easy way to do it. So this um, ancient trail used by Native Americans, used by game. So literally, you know, this this trail is very, very old. Um, Europeans started to use it around the turn of the eight, the uh, 19th century. And um, because that road got established and because it got developed pretty soon after, it really united those Tennessee and Kentucky settlements with the um, Natchez and New Orleans settlements. So it really brought the country together and kind of made a cohesive South. So I think that's a, a worthy reason of writing about the Natchez Trace. One thing that I think is interesting, Josh, that you mentioned before we started, and Ryan, interested interested in how you both see this, you both said you're not historians, right? Um, and so what is the difference between a historian and a writer writing about history? I guess a historian might spend, you know, five or ten years doing original research on a subject, and if a, a historian's book about the Natchez Trace might be 400 pages long, and it might be so minutely detailed that it becomes the kind of the new benchmark for just talking about the Natchez Trace and the Natchez Trace's role in um, American history. But what what we do is we write in a narrative style. So if you have a great memoir, for instance, we use a lot of newspaper articles, uh, which are, you know, primary sources that published in the time period. We use a lot of memoirs that were written in the time period, but then were usually were published, uh, typed and published so that we can access them easily. So we might take a memoir. Um, I'm trying to think of a good one. Lorenzo Dow was a preacher who traveled up and down the Natchez Trace trying to kind of bring uh protestant religion to the settlers and um he he left these really interesting records of his travels so we might read his memoir and pick out a nice little anecdote from his years of traveling up and down the trace and then just tell that in 2000 words and add in a little bit of context very interesting yeah the book is fascinating um you know it's things that actually happened but i really appreciate y'all have compiled the sources but then really put it in your own language and that narrative style really comes through there's so much rich language there um so you don't feel like you're reading a book about history you know it's more told like like a story um and so it just really you know captures your attention and so it's it's in a very interesting spot in writing i guess um and so the book consists of 13 chapters, each of which focus on a different true story of life and death along the Natchez Trace. 
spanning from the time of Hernando de Soto making first contact in 1542 to Meriwether Lewis's death in 1809, which I didn't know he died um, around the Natchez Trace. How did you choose which stories to include and which to leave out? And how do you think the individual stories work together to make a complete image of the history of the Natchez Trace? Well, we had a we had a 40,000 word count. That was our max. We really needed about 400,000. So we had to be pretty selective with the stories. And we just write we write about what interests us because we're going to invest a year and we take it pretty seriously and we put a lot of hard work, a lot of hours into it. And so it's got to be something that, that we find interesting. And we're two pretty normal people. I figure if it's a story that entertains us and holds our attention for a year, other readers will like it as well. One of my favorite contemporary writers is uh, she writes historical fiction. She's from Jackson, Mississippi as well, Katie Simpson Smith. And in, it, in an interview once, she said that she was always taught to write about what you know, but she didn't want to do that. She wanted to go learn something new. She wanted to write about something she didn't know. And whereas Josh and I had a pretty uh, basic foundation of Natchez Trace history, we had some gaps in our historical knowledge, certain parts of the trace, certain generations, certain people that lived on the trace. And so we wanted to spend a year trying to fill in some of those gaps. And we tried to find a story from every generation, from, from the pre-contact times all the way up to, to modern times. So what is that process like for both of you working on this together to gather research for the books? Well, this is our, I think our sixth or seventh that we've done. And Josh will work primarily on one story and then I'll give feedback and then I'll do the same thing and, and he'll help me out with mine. In the end, we come together and edit and edit again and then edit some more and then some more editing uh, so that we come up with one voice. We like it when our readers say, I can't tell who wrote what chapter. Well, and that was a question I had for you because when I have groups write papers for class you can so clearly tell when one author switches in the paper and so how do you do that right simultaneously it took you know we started with hidden history of jackson and if you probably if you go back and look you could tell more easily back then that each chapter was written by a different author but you know, we communicate with each other. We reflect every time we write something. And I think it's just our voices have grown kind of closer and closer together. And so I really, I really don't think that any, the average reader would be able to tell at this point. You write as one. <laughs> <laughs> and then also too, as you're writing the books, do you notice reoccurring themes? You're talking about hidden histories. Is there anything that surprises you about these hidden histories of different places in Mississippi and the South? Yeah, um, I guess I'm always surprised because I, I rarely know any of these stories before we really start these projects. So learning a new story to me is very surprising. Um, since this since this episode has a kind of a true crime kind of spin to it, I'll I will uh, bring up one of my favorite stories back from the Jackson book that we first wrote. 
But um, it was a surprise to me because of, it was a small story. And um, I'll see if I can remember the details. But um, there was a woman named Kate Rutherford who lived in Jackson. And Jack, this was uh, in the 1870s, I believe. So Jackson was kind of, you know, post-Civil War, but still kind of rough, not not very developed. And she, her husband had died. And she had inherited uh, a little bit of money, and then she had gotten remarried to a man named DeSell. And DeSell, uh, at this time, the Delta was kind of a, a area that was being developed. And so you could get rich if you went to the – well, everybody thought you could get rich if you went to the Delta and started cutting down trees or um, farming. You know, there was this narrative that – if you only have to work half as hard in the Delta to farm as you do any other place in America. So it was kind of this kind of get rich quick idea of these people moving to the Delta. So this man, uh, DeSell moved his new wife, Kate Rutherford, Kate DeSell to the Delta. And, uh, things got really bad for her. So he was a a bad alcoholic. He was a, um, he was a distiller. And so he was making liquor and he was kind of taking her inherited money and just gambling it away in Vicksburg and spending it on things that she didn't know about. And the, you know, worst of all, he was beating her. So um, one day he beat her so bad that she had to take refuge in her chicken coop at her house. Mm -hmm. And um, her family came to see her and, you know, no one could find her and they realized she was in the in the chicken coop just you know bloody and bruised and beaten up and so something had to had to give with this story and she ended up um leaving her husband while he was in memphis so he had taken the train to memphis from the delta and she got on a uh wagon and and went to jackson where her two brothers and her family lived and um, they lived in, you know, now the kind of the trendy area of Jackson is Fondren and that kind of northeast Jackson area. That's where her family lived back then. And it was it was kind of a rural part of Jackson. But so she went into her family home and um, basically had left her husband. And um, when he got back to the his Delta town. You know, he heard that his wife had left him and that she had gone to Jackson. So, you know, he was very drunk or in the process of getting very drunk. And so he got on the train and went straight over to Jackson. And uh, he was going to go and confront his wife's family and get his wife and take her back to the Delta. So he said, uh, they said he got off the, the train in Jackson and, quote, the first thing he did was to tank up on liquor. So he's... He's getting really drunk. He's got his pistols. He's walking around with his hand on his pistol, and he's telling people he's going to get his wife back. And um, he ends up getting to their uh, family home there in Jackson, and she's in the bedroom, and her two brothers are there. And um, he he goes in, DeSell goes in, and, and kind of demands that his wife he get his wife back. And, you know, you can imagine how tense that situation would have been. And um, her her brothers ended up 
shooting and killing DeSalle. There was a gunfight in the living room of the house. And um, kind of the, you know, best case scenario, DeSalle was the one that got shot and killed and nobody else got killed or I don't even think injured. So, but, um, you know, that, that was a story that um, Kate DeSalle ended up, now she's a widow twice over. And she ended up living in Jackson, living this long life. Um, and no one knew that story. Like nobody probably had re- had read that story since the 1870s. And it was a small story. It didn't have a lot of historical significance, but it was such a uh, emotionally moving story. And so that was a big surprise to me to find that. Just literally randomly looking through newspaper archives from the 1870s and finding that story. And um, so that was an that was an example of a time that I felt really surprised by a story and moved by a story. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, you know, we've said this quote a few times, writing what you know, but I think one way to interpret that is writing something that you are really interested in, you know, and that interest will kind of lead you to write it in an authentic way um, and be true to the story. Uh, and so in all of these stories and the one that you just told and a lot of the ones in Death Along the Natchez Trace, yeah, there's things that, you know, they're, they've been hidden for a reason. They maybe don't have the biggest historical impact, but in each of them, you get such a glimpse of, you know, the human experience or life in that moment. Um, and I think that's why they ring so true, you know, to so many people is because you really can connect with them across space and time um so yeah super interesting and and that one is a great example of that you know um such an emotional story and of something that happened here you know um that people wouldn't know about uh so yeah that's great and um i kind of want to uh take a deep dive into a few more of these stories that y'all have found uh so for death along the natchez trace I was thinking maybe both of you could choose at least one story, maybe the one that you found the most fascinating, and tell us everything you can think of about it, just like you just did. How did you come to know about it? What happened? And why does it stand out to you so much? When we first started researching, I was surprised to learn that Meriwether Lewis was killed and buried on the Natchez Trace. That blew my mind. somehow shocked me uh, up in Tennessee. And everybody back then knew Meriwether Lewis. He was LeBron James, Michael Jackson, Trump, all combined. Everybody had heard <laughs> of Meriwether Lewis. He made the most exciting journey any American had, had done up to that point. Uh, he was the leader of the Corps of Discovery, the Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea expedition. Uh, he made it to the Pacific Ocean and back absolutely brilliant mind. Thomas Jefferson was a personal friend of his and his patron. Uh, He was made governor of the Louisiana Territory. Uh, He just signed a huge contract to write probably the most anticipated book in American history about the Corps of Discovery. Uh, There's even talk that he's going to be president one day because he's still in his 30s. And then uh, in 1809, he travels back to, to Washington, but he hears a political rival General James Wilkinson, who we learned about a hundred years after he died that he's actually a double agent for Spain. 
He's a high-ranking American general, but also serving the, the Spanish. He's a real uh, scoundrel in history, mm. and he hated uh, Meriwether Lewis. And so he's going up the Mississippi River towards St. Louis, and Lewis doesn't want to run into him. So instead of going down the Mississippi to New Orleans and sailing up the Atlantic, he decides to stop at the Natchez Trace and go from Natch or Chickasaw Bluffs, hit the Trace, and then travel up to Nashville. Uh, in 18... or on October 10th, he stops at this house pretty close to his, to his final destination or his final goal, and it's called Grinder Stand uh, on the Tennessee side of the Trace. And he's behaving very erratically, uh, he'd been behaving erratically for, for a couple of years now. And uh, Priscilla Grinder, who lent him the room for the night, she takes her kids off to another cabin, and she hears two gunshots in the middle of the night. Well, she's terrified because he's acting kind of crazy, and there's also bandits up and down the trace, and she's got little children. So she keeps them in her house, keeps the doors locked, won't go out. In the morning, she walks over to see what happened to Lewis, and she opens the door and he's lying on the floor with half of his skull gone and a pistol shot in the abdomen as well. And he's begging for, for somebody to finish him off. Mm. And, and to this day, there's a dispute in the historical community. Uh, it's a great mystery. Was it suicide or was he murdered? And then uh, Josh and I are happy to say we've conclusively discovered the answer. What is but it? I have to buy the book to... No. Oh, sure. <laughs> uh, we we take a side. We we believe that it was suicide, and I'm I'm as certain as you can be that it would be suicide. But at the same time, realizing there are some strong arguments for murder as well. And uh, today, why did he kill him? Why do you both think suicide? Why did he kill himself? Well, if it was suicide, which we we do strongly believe, there's a letter from from his friend Clark when Clark learns about Lewis's death. He says, I think his deteriorating mind finally caught up with him or finally got to him. And Clark just wasn't that surprised. And then Lewis had uh, changed his will right before the journey. And it was kind of a death letter to Clark, kind of hinting that he might not make it. Uh, he'd been suffering from alcoholism for a few years. Uh, he had chronic depression. And he has what psychologists today call the Buzz Aldrin sy syndrome. Uh, he, but like Buzz Aldrin went to the moon. But then you have half your life left to live. What What do you want to do from there? Uh, he went to the Pacific Ocean. That was the moon back then. Uh, what else could Lewis accomplish? And when he was active and he, he was on this journey and he was having to use his mind, it helped him cope with his depression. But when he sits at a desk and he's dealing with a bureaucracy and trying to write this book that he can never get finished and all that's weighing on his mind... And then he had tried to commit suicide two other times just before setting out on the trace. So I, I, I do believe he shot himself. But if you, there are some, for example, the guy that wrote the Ford to our book, Tony Turnbow, wrote a couple of really good books on the Natchez Trace. He's a lawyer up in Franklin, Tennessee. He says pretty decisively that it was murder. And we just wow. had to agree to disagree. And there's, there's strong arguments for both sides. But that, that sure. was one of the most interesting stories to research for me. That is super interesting because, you know, growing up, I learned about Lewis and Clark. And I think part of what you learned is that Lewis always was like depressed. He kind of struggled with that his whole life and that he eventually died by suicide. But you, you don't know that it's right here on the trace, you know, and on this, you know, so close to Mississippi 
Um, so I thought that was really interesting how such a, a, a this time a huge historical moment, you know, did happen right here on the trace, but where it happened is the one thing that people don't know about. Uh, so that was really interesting to read about. And one thing before we go on to the other story, Sam, I'm curious too, you and Josh both agreed on that. Have there been times historically that you both disagree? Not yet, what? I could think of. <laughs> Maybe the style we write something, the way a phrase is used or a paragraph seems out of place. From the writing end, we've had some some disagreements, but I don't think any, on a macro level we have. You're like historical detectives. <laughs> in that in that particular story, you know, Ryan is the person who did all the reading and all the research on that that one. So I did not go and read all the as thoroughly about all the sources as Ryan. So if Ryan thinks it was suicide, I would just concur with Ryan. I wouldn't I would not do the same amount of research and try to draw my own conclusion. So And I maybe could, maybe it was murder. We we won't know. We don't know. And I I mean, I hadn't thought about that. You guys are writing about history and things that have already happened. But even still, what research can only take you so far, you know, and so that that's I'll, just part of it. I'll uh, I'll bring up one. I'll try to make it somewhat brief, but there's one story that we've written about a few times and I just love it. It's one of my favorite stories ever. And that's DeSoto moving through the South and moving through the entire state of Mississippi. And um, every every historian who has studied DeSoto knows that there were, um, I believe, four narratives left by either people who were on his expedition or people who had interviewed people who were on his expedition. And so you have these four really good primary sources that were written in in a good, you know, depending on which one you're reading, pretty good detail. Like you can almost you know, read a, a week by week or a month by month detail of this years long journey of DeSoto. So, you know, as a narrative writer, your your job is not to kind of compare all four sources and try to figure out which source is the most accurate and kind of find flaws in each source. Because if, if we did that, you know, it would take too long. Other historians have already done it. Um, we're not, I, I would not feel like I would be qualified to do it unless I had spent like years researching it. And, um, and it would, it would break the narrative. People, the, the reader would not be interested in that kind of dialogue on those sources. So when we've written about DeSoto, we will look at all four sources and kind of maybe choose the one that fits the narrative the best and just try to try to put the emphasis on the narrative. But in the, in a footnote mentioned that this is one of four sources and this source might conflict with some of the other sources. And um, I think the most detailed source is the one that's considered the least reliable, still valuable, but not as accurate as one of the other sources. That's much more bare bones and dry. So that's Very an instance where, yeah, that's an instance where you kind of know that you're using a narrative that's not, probably not reflective of what really happened hundred percent, but you're using it to serve the narrative and because it is a, an important primary source. Yeah. That's interesting. A, kind of um, something that is necessary in the type of writing that you're doing, kind of turning historical events into narrative form 
Um, you want to have that creative license to write it in the way that you want, but there's also the duty to the audience to let them know um, it's, you know, it's disputed. We we don't know. This is a version of what happened, but we can't be sure. And so, yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. I think that's something that only what happened when you're writing this sort of historical narrative kind of writing. And, and what are y'all working on next? Well, we just came out with a book on the Mississippi Delta, the hidden history of the Mississippi Delta. I came out of two or three weeks ago, I think. And then we're we're finishing up one on pirates along the Gulf Coast. Pirates. pirates. Oh, I love that. Coast. Wow. That comes out, I think, the end of August. Maybe mid-August, somewhere around there. And then Josh wants to do one on, on uh, North Mississippi, the, mm. the small hill up to Tishomingo area. What about Starkville? My- what about Starkville? Yeah, that's one of the reasons I want to do North Mississippi so we can tell a few good stories from Starkville. My whole family's from the uh, Yazoo, so okay, cool. we'll be really interested in reading the uh, hidden histories of the Delta. Yeah. yeah. Josh, which one did you want to talk about? Uh, well, I, I went back and looked at the Kate DeSalle story in our uh, Jackson book, and it was the 1890s, not the 1870s, so I just wanted to make that correction. But, um, from the Natchez Trace, the, a story that popped into my mind that um, it I think it popped into my mind because I was talking with Dr. Brad Lieb recently, and he is the archaeologist for the Chickasaw Nation, and he lives in Ridgeland, Mississippi. And um, I had mentioned this guy named James Logan Colbert to him, who was an uh, early Chickasaw. And he knew all about James Logan Colbert, and he just started going, telling me stories about James Logan Colbert. And so I thought um, that was fresh on my mind. So that's that's the story I chose to tell. And um, it has a connection to the city of Natchez, which is also happens to be one of my favorite stories that we worked on. So I'll start at Natchez. So Natchez, Mississippi, um, in the late 1700s, was a British city. And it was a kind of river trading city, and um, Britain had started to settle some veterans there to try and kind of bring in people to start farms and and, uh, populate that area. So one of the men who uh, moved to Natchez was this guy named John Blommert, and he was a Swiss-born sailor. He had joined the Royal Navy, British Royal Navy, when he was a teenager. And um, which was not that uncommon for a Swiss to kind of become a mercenary and join another nation's army. And he had spent um, his entire career in the Royal Navy. So this was the era, this was the age of sail when you had all of the, you know, world powers kind of sailing the seas and, you know, engaging in battle and literally traveling, traveling all over the world. And John Blomert did all that. And he worked his way up to um, captain. So he became a ship captain. And he served in the Seven Years' War, um, and which had uh, its theater was the Lower Mississippi Valley to some extent. So, anyway, very accomplished man, um, you know, sea captain, and he settles in Natchez when Natchez is pretty much a frontier town. And so he's he becomes the richest person in Natchez by farming and trading, and he's just this kind of like 
you know, good at everything he does. And Spain at this time is also vying for control of the lower Mississippi Valley. And so Spain ends up capturing uh, Natchez from the British. But they say, Spain says, if you're, if you're already here, if you're a British citizen and all you have to do is just swear your loyalty to the Spanish king and you can just continue living here, continue on with your life, no problem. And um, that's what most people did. But, um, you know, the American Revolution started and Britain, knowing that they had this retired sea captain in Natchez, um, they kind of hatched this plan for John Blomert to recapture Natchez for Britain. So they send him these secret messages and um, in order to kind of give give this the veneer of it being a, a, an, a military action, they send him all these blank commissions. So John Blomert is just going to recruit people in his area to kind of try to overthrow the Spanish govern, government in Natchez. And he's going to make them military officers kind of like on, on the fly. And so John Blomert being this traitor, he knows all these Choctaw, he knows these Creek, and he gets hundreds of Choctaw and Creek warriors to come and help him in his cause. And he gets all of these British loyalists in the Natchez area to help him in his cause. And they end up going and digging up um, French cannons that had been abandoned many decades before, literally digging them up out of the ground and kind of, they got two or three of these old cannons and kind of marched to the fort, um, the old French fort, which the Spanish were kind of occupying and demanded the surrender of the Spanish and the surrender of Natchez. So it was kind of a, like, the odds were um, not in his favor. So he ends up intercepting a letter that was being sent from outside the fort. And he ends up forging this kind of taking the letter, changing it, forging it and inserting this little part about how John Blomert and his British uh, allies had been tunneling underneath the fort, had planted all of these explosives in the tunnel, and they were just about ready to blow up the fort. And so wow. they, they do all this forging of this letter secretly and then send the letter on its way to the Spanish. And when the Spanish get this letter and read that the, there's a tunnel underneath the fort and it's about to be blown up, they surrender to John Blomert. So you have this kind of retired sea captain with this ragtag army of you know, Choctaw and Creek warriors who, who recaptures Natchez for Britain. So now all of a sudden Britain has control of Natchez again. And um, I think that they, they had no hope that the plan was going to succeed and they were not ready to reinforce Blomert in the instance that he took control of Natchez. So Blomert essentially got abandoned by the British. They, they couldn't bring troops in and reinforce him. So he, he held out for a few weeks, but he eventually just said, okay, I, you know, here's, here's the fort back. And the Spanish took control of Natchez again. So, um, Blomert, of course, is a traitor, according to the Spanish, you know, this was a, this was treason because he had sworn allegiance to the Spanish King. So they put him in prison. Okay. So you have John Blomert, who's kind of a British patriot who's in prison. That's the, that's the setup for this story that I'm going to tell you about the Natchez trace. Well, up the trace in Tupelo, which was at that time kind of the um, center of the Chickasaw Nation, you had a man named James Logan Colbert, and he was Scottish. He had grown up in the Carolinas, but he had moved to the Chickasaw Nation when he was very young 
And so for all intents and purposes, he was Chickasaw. But he had he had lived there for 40 years. So he had lived the life of a Chickasaw, had had grown very influential in the Chickasaw Nation, had married, had fathered a lot of children. He had married three women, fathered, fathered a lot of children, warrior, led men. And so he could speak English. That was his native language. He could speak Chickasaw and he knew the cultures of both the, the British and the Chickasaw. And um, he had helped the Chickasaw develop this alliance with the British. So you've got the British with this strong Chickasaw alliance in Mississippi, and you've got the Spanish who are kind of have taken control of Natchez and are trying to control that lower Mississippi Valley. And so James Logan Colbert, during this American Revolutionary period, decides that he is going to basically act as a um, agent of the British. And literally, he led British troops to the Mississippi River, and um, they hatched this plan, another British plan, to kind of gain influence from the Spanish. So this time, the plan is the Spanish governor's wife, Anika Nora Ramos, is going to be traveling from New Orleans up to Arkansas. And, you know travel up the Mississippi River at this time was very slow so she's she's on this keel boat um, she's traveling with all these Spanish supplies up to this kind of garrison in Arkansas and so Colbert has led these 40 British troops to the riverbank and they are going to um, call out in French to Anicanor Ramos and tell her that they have mail for her so here comes, just on schedule, here comes the keel boat up the Mississippi River, and they get one of their French speakers to shout out, uh, Mrs. Ramos, we have mail for you. Pull over. Pull the boat over. And so she she takes whoever's, you know, guiding her boat, pulls it over onto the riverbank, and Colbert and these 40 British troops rush out, grab the boat, and the boat is captured. So the Spanish governor's wife is now captured by the British and by mm-hmm. the, the Chickasaw. And um, she has her four young children with her as well. So now Colbert has all the leverage in the world over the Spanish. And the Spanish have John Blomert. So um, they end up kind of capturing her and her children. And about 300 Chickasaw arrive. So you've got all these – she's surrounded by Chickasaw warriors at this point. And they've got this idea to take her into the Chickasaw homeland onto the Natchez Trace. And so at this time, there is no European traffic on the Natchez Trace. Mm -hmm. So you have to imagine a trail that goes through the Chickasaw Nation, and it's either wilderness or Chickasaw and Choctaw settlements. So if you got moved into that interior place, you were just cut off from society. I mean, and I... You know, she may have feared that she would never leave. But um, anyway, they ended up holding her there near the riverbank for about three weeks. And finally, I guess after the after uh, Colbert let the pressure build for a little while, he said, "Um, I'm going to let you go. You have to go back down to New Orleans. And here's a letter for the uh, governor at New Orleans. And I'm asking that he release John Blomberg. So Colbert kind of showed a little mercy to Anika Nora Ramos and let her go back down to New Orleans. He did not let her go to Arkansas, which was, is where she wanted to go, which, which is where her husband was. But 
So she got back down to New Orleans, delivered the letter, and eventually John Blomert was released from a um, dungeon in New Orleans. Mm. But uh, he was a completely broken man by that point. But um, that's a fun story from the Natchez Trace because that was 1782. And at that time, the trace was not the dangerous road. The trace was the safe garrison of the Chickasaw. And everyone who was around the trace was in danger of these kind of Chickasaw warriors who could move freely through this area. So I thought mm. that was a an interesting um, kind of aspect of the Natchez Trace. We usually think of the Natchez Trace as dangerous, but at that time it was kind of a base for James Logan Colbert. That is so – I just love hearing her name too. <laughs> Mm. I'm probably pronouncing it completely wrong. We need no, one of our Spanish it. professors to say it. <laughs> but yeah, and fascinating. It's, it is. It's all like uh, so much larger than life or stranger than fiction, you know, that he convinced them that there was, uh, you know, bombs buried underneath the base um, and just kind of these uh, half-baked plans. But they they worked uh yeah and it also kind of shows you before what the natchez trace is now you know is the territory of the chickasaw like you're saying um kind of a different way um aspect of it you know was kind of their territory they knew about it um and and so for a while like you were saying people knew that if they were on the trace you know they were deep into Native American territory. Um, and so that's just not how we think about it now, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I really appreciate all these stories. Um, the whole book is so great. You know, I drive on the trace every day and there's all of these uh, signposts and, and different historical events that you can pull over and read and learn about. And it really seems like y'all have taken all of these stories and put them together in one place um, and it just gives you such a well-rounded understanding of the trace and what all all of its history and the different types of people who have lived there. So, there's a um, I I didn't realize it, but just outside Starkville, there's Pigeon Roost, and one of the stories in the Natchez Trace book is about this uh, these passenger pigeons, who there were so many of them that when they landed they would literally just crush the forest. Hmm. And oh, if, if you walked through the area, it looked like a tornado had completely destroyed the forest. So that's just right outside Starkville on the Natchez Trace. But it was it's so fun to read about all that and then go there and just think like, well, here it is. Here's the signpost. And this is where that, that happened. Well, and if people want to purchase your books, tell us where 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 can they get them? Uh, our biggest supporter over the years has been Lemuria Books in Jackson. Um, they always host us when we release a new book, and they sell their sell, sell all of our books. And all, uh, many of our books that they sell are signed already. But um, you can you can find them at Lemuria. You can also find them on Amazon. You can find them um, at many bookstores around Mississippi. So they're pretty easy to get. Barnes and Noble on campus. Um, I know has the Natchez Trace book because they hosted us for a signing last year. 
Well, thank you all so much for being a guest on the Vision Podcast. And for our listeners, if you have an idea for a podcast episode or have a question about the show, please email me, Karen Brown, at kbrown at dnas.msstate.edu. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Sam, and thank you, Karen. Thank you so much for joining. It was great talking to y'all. Thank you.